Hey everybody, welcome back to Adventures in Machine Learning. We have our two co-hosts today, Michael and myself, Ben Wilson. And today we have a really special treat for the audience. And it's pretty much the entire development team of open source project MLflow from Databricks. Team's here to you know just to answer some questions. Michael's got a bunch of good ones lined up, and we're just gonna have some fun and, and talk to some world-class developers today. Yeah, so we'll, we'll keep it light, hopefully talk about some really interesting topics. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs, but what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. And so let, let's kick it off with everybody introducing themselves. Just a, a quick background, what you do at Databricks, and then one tech-related thing that you guys are interested in outside of work. Fantastic. I'll probably have to think as I talk on the uh, extracurricular interest there, but uh, I'm Corey. I'm a software engineer, primarily focused on MLOps at Databricks. I've been with the company about four years and almost exclusively have worked on MLflow and MLflow adjacent projects. And it's it's really been a lot of fun. I'd say outside of work, uh, have been following a little bit more around the uh, what's going on in the crypto space, but haven't had the guts to get involved myself. Uh, so at this point, very passive consumer. Awesome. Thanks, Corey. Uh, maybe I can introduce myself. Uh, my name is Jin Zhang. I joined Databricks about a year ago as a quote-by-quote uh, tech lead of the team, but I'm actually Corey's the tech lead. I just uh, ask stupid questions uh, during the team stand-ups. Before Databricks, I was working at a Google X project called Project Loom, building Loom Internet, uh, serving the underserved areas. I've been there for six years. Outside of uh, the my primary tech concern area, I, I like to read a lot uh, about all, all kinds of things. Uh, my recent interest is actually in anti-aging and technologies. So if you have a question on that, so maybe I can answer it. That's really neat. That is super cool. Haru, if you could go next. Yeah, I'm going to go next. So hi, my name is Haru. I'm a software engineer at Databricks. And uh, I joined the Databricks about one and a half a year ago. And I think I am the only like MFO team member that transfers Databricks employee from MFO contributor. And, and outside of the work, I'm interested in Rust. I mean, the programming language because it's hyped. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm actually learning Rust recently. Awesome. It's really cool. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the key part of any programming language is it's hype. Only important aspect. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Haru. And Wei Shen? I'm Wei Shen. I'm, I joined Databricks for about four years. And before joining the MLflow community, I worked on the Spark community. 
uh, about the MNOD components of the Spark. And yeah, and also there are some deep learning projects. And yeah, outside the ML flow, I will also uh, uh, keep interest in all kinds of ML projects like TensorFlow, Possible, PyTorch. Hey, everybody, I'm Ben. I'm kidding. I just wanted to say it's really fascinating to me getting to work with this team about seeing where everybody has. It's not just, oh, there's there's strengths and weaknesses on the team. It's there's exceptional abilities and knowledge of certain people that they just step up and help one another out with such a deep understanding of different components of the ecosystem. We have a question on visualization and how how to make something look within the UI. Haru will just figure it out and mock something up. And it's usually like pretty much perfect and it far exceeds the expectations of, of what people are looking for. If we have some deep understanding of MLlib and Spark and how things work in a distributed system, we can just ask Wei Shen and he just knows. And then Corey is just this massive deep lake of knowledge about everything Databricks and how backend engineering works. So Everybody compliments one another, and it's it's really fascinating to to just see, sit back and watch, and be a part of that team. Yeah, I'm very excited to get into some questions regarding the culture. It seems like a, a great a great space. So, Ben, while you were talking, just for people who aren't familiar, can you give a one liner on Databricks and a one liner on MLflow? Oh, one liner on Databricks. <laughs> I mean, it, we have our marketing term, unified analytics platform. It enables everything data pretty much. But the company is split in different ways with regards to sort of ecosystems of how engineering is focused. So the team that is on right now is, is ML, uh, focused ML ops particularly. And what it really brings to the table is an ecosystem that enables data scientists, ML engineers, and data engineers too, to all collaborate together uh, to put product, you know, basically ML in production. That was a lot more than one line, but hopefully that was good. Yeah, we'll I think chop it up with some periods and semicolons and whatnot <laughs> and uh, make the line really long. You uh, did it. <laughs> no word wrap. Yeah, awesome. All right, so let's kick it off. I did a little bit of research and learned that at year one, MLflow had 140 contributors and 800,000 downloads per month. And this was almost double or triple Spark. So obviously, you guys had a lot larger of a platform than when you started Spark versus when you started MLflow. But do you guys have any idea what contributed to its success and what made it so popular? It's a, a wonderful and really interesting question, sort of how we've built on a platform that Spark gave us in a lot of ways in terms of community growth and evangelism. I think in those early days, we knew a lot more about what it meant to build an open source project and try to galvanize a community and make connections, not just with uh, sort of individual practitioners and solo developers, but also other companies who are willing to support us. I think that was really key to a lot of the initial success, focusing on open interfaces and APIs, but understanding that we can't be the only ones doing the legwork of implementing them, that there are tons of developers in the community that are really excited about solving the same kinds of problems in the ML ops space that we were excited about solving. So I think we were very deliberate about making sure that we reached out and asked for contributions in those early days and that we made some partnerships with companies that we felt aligned with our viewpoints. 
And we work pretty closely to this day with the Azure ML folks uh, who have viewed MLflow as a, a burgeoning standard and have helped us push forward that way. And we've also uh, had collaborations that have spanned many months or even in some cases a couple of years with other uh, organizations that uh, have really helped push this forward. So a lot of those initial 140 contributors are you know, folks from other companies or folks that just believed in the mission and uh, and saw that we were doing something really cool. Got it. So you sort of leveraged everyone's network and the network created through prior projects to have some really robust contributors. Absolutely. Yeah. I think really robust is the best way to characterize it. They, they did a lot, uh, especially in that first year or so. Got it. The yeah, street cred was that. developed by by Spark. So people are like, oh, yeah. Databricks. Yeah, definitely. They created this new thing. We know how good they are. So yeah, we'll help them out. Yeah, I want to add that I came from a closed source developer community. With Google, by itself, is a really large database, a lot of developers. But it's, it does not, I see there's, it does not share this like a decentralized, like code by code decentralized network. Uh, like a, a lot of uh, collaborators can form this uh, it's a, a, like a backbone for the development or open source project that they I do not really see in the in the controlled way like developed let say in a big software company like Google. So it's really eye opening up I joined the database. I see uh, this is how actually open source project works. It's very interesting to see this. You, you don't get a uniform contribution, but you get a few contributors, so very key contributors from different companies and that actually build the product and also get it adopted. Speaking of really strong and uniform contributors, Haru was just an excellent example. <laughs> I'd be curious, on a related note, Haru, how you felt coming in and sort of because because you became one of the largest contributors, what your experience mm-hmm. was like? What motivated you to do that? What motivated me to do that? I think the biggest motivation was because I was a MailFlow user. So I just so before I joined Databricks, I I was a data scientist and uh, I was actually a Databricks user. And on Databricks, I used uh, MLflow. And I just wanted to improve it because I was a MLflow user. And, uh, you know, I I heavily used MLflow. So sometimes I found bugs and I sometimes came up with like improvement ideas. That's, yeah, that's my, that was my motivation. I don't know, but sometimes I'd say a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A lot of new features. So it was purely selfish reasons, it sounds like. <laughs> selfish reasons. Yeah. It was so, a natural <laughs> and a natural curiosity, right? I mean you you love this. It's clear. You could see you yeah. know, every every PR you file. It's like they're filed with love of like passion. You can see like, oh, look at all these cool things that he's fixing that they're not on the roadmap at all. It's just awesome stuff to make this product even better. I really lo- I love that uh, the categorization. I think that's that's all the great software project I've seen. Uh, people create and contribute and like yeah, based on love. That we really want to improve it. Awesome. So, so you guys have clearly seen a lot of success and built a really useful tool that's changing the industry. Can we zoom in a bit into the process? So open source is a bit different from closed source or just private projects. So how did you guys, do you guys think you achieved the success? Was it luck? Was it process? Was it talent? What, it clearly you had some key contributors, but um, what made those contributions so effective? Yeah, it's a, a really interesting evolution, I think, that that touches on in how we developed MLflow. I think in the early days, a lot of the success was attributable to 
process in, in many ways and, and dedicated focus on building that uh, open source interface and understanding what major problems in the MLOps space we were going after and how we could solve those in an open way. And then making sure that we were doing work that wasn't just focused on elevating Databricks in the MLOps space, but was also focused on solving this really challenging problem for a bunch of smaller organizations and developers that really didn't have a lot of great tooling or methodologies around this previously. So for that first year, we were building MLflow and open source. We had this team of uh, eight or nine people that were just focused on creating these, these components, these standards, and working with the community to push those along. And we had some really brilliant guidance from folks like Matei uh, Zaharia here at, uh, at Databricks that were just uh, designing a lot of the uh, initial interfaces. You know, he, he had just tons of experience doing this from Spark and uh, a bunch of insights and uh, tons of other really experienced engineers and, and folks, uh, the product perspective as well, that, that really pushed it forward. Since then, we've then scaled substantially at Databricks and we've been able to take on a dual focus with making sure that Databricks is an awesome MLOps standard and for its customers, but then also continuing to build out MLflow. Got it. And so, so it sounds like you guys had tons of t- talent, but you also focused on solving really challenging and important problems. I was wondering if uh, you guys could elaborate on how you select what problems to solve, because there's millions of them. So how do you know what's the highest ROI problem? Absolutely. I'd like to maybe give Jen a chance to answer and others. That, uh... Yeah, I, I think my observation is that, uh, again, drawing my past experience, uh, how, how the work actually are done at Google and database, I started very different. Uh, Google engineers try to think of a really cool and fashionable problem that try to solve. It's, it's a great way of uh, making advances technologically. But here at Databricks, you, you asked a great question, Michael. I think the Databricks are really good at identifying the key problems to address. Uh, like on the front, you have so many problems you, you can, you can potentially solve. You only have very limited resources. How do we concentrate the effort? The Databricks, I think the very first thing we do is have to do customer research. We talk to as many customers as, as we could. To actually identify the commonalities, what what the pain points they are they actually having, and they collect those those feedbacks, and then we we start from there. I think that basically this kind of a, even for open source projects, this kind of a customer focused efforts give us a very good guidance. What what the next steps will be? I think that's that's often contributed a lot, not just MLflow open source, but the Databricks products as a whole. Successful. Got it. So starting with the, the problems of the users themselves, essentially. Yes. And I think there's always kind of a challenge in teasing out you know, what is a problem for one or two really vocal users or customers? And then you know, what is a problem for the other 99% of folks that are uh, doing data science and machine learning? And oftentimes it's, it's tempting to over-index. I think a lot of what Jen said about pushing the envelope and building exciting new technologies for the sake of building those technologies for niche use cases is extremely tempting. So it's always trying to kind of keep that in check. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Wei Chen, I know you work a little bit on... Uh, well, first of all, you've been, you've been at Databricks for the longest out of anyone in this group. So I was wondering if you had comments on what were the important features early on and what sort of made Databricks a, and specifically MLflow a very high value add tool. Uh, from my side, I I think one point is the MLflow 
construct an ecosystem which connect to all kinds of MFO projects. For example, MFO can support Scikit-learn, can support ng-boost, and can support TensorFlow or Keras and PyTorch. All kinds of MFO, uh, all kinds of M machine learning projects, uh, you, those can easily integrate with MFLow and can evaluate, evaluate the metrics of the training process and can block artifacts. And so it makes user to use machine learning more easily. And also that's why um, MFLow can, uh, there are so many users using MFLow because they, um, because everyone, he might use one of the machine learning projects and then he, he might want to do, do some training and evaluation the process. Uh, the process that he, he may, he will yeah. find MFO is a great, that's, that's a great elaboration. Thank you. Haru, I know you worked on ML testing specifically and you've made apparently tons of really great contributions. But I was wondering if you could elaborate on specifically how testing has evolved since the beginning. So what was the most important, if you could write one test, what was the most important test at MLflow zero? And then how has it evolved? So, well, sorry, could you say that? Yeah. Can you say that again? So, yeah, so it, two parts. The first part is at the beginning, mm -hmm. what is the most important testing structure to have in place for MLflow? And then what, what have you been working on recently and where is it going? The most important testing infrastructure, I think, yeah, it is testing strategy we call cross-version testing. So, yeah, this is a complicated, but um, so MFL supports like uh, many integrations, like integrations for SQLARM, integrations for Hydrogen, integration for TensorFlow, and uh, we need to make sure these MFLow integration work with supported library libraries across multiple versions. So we have a workflow uh, to test that. Like, God. I think that's the most important, uh, like testing strategy, and so that ensures uh, MLflow works on uh, like lots of machine learning libraries across multiple versions. Got it. And and obviously you can't tell us exactly how it works, but can you tell us a little bit of how it works? You mean how how does it work? Is so what we do is um, actually pretty uh, simple. So we just construct like like an array of or like metrics. And how should I explain this? I mean, we kind of yeah. What we do? Yeah, like query query PyPy and say for a, for a Python package, like what versions are available. But the the key mm -hmm. thing with with that cross version that I just wanted to call out in case in case we didn't cover it was Haru's implementation of pulling develop branches for these packages so that we know way before a release happens if something's going to break. Yeah, so you uh, effectively yeah. figure out what's your minimum supported version and you test all the way up from that minimum through the bleeding edge and you run this matrix of tests on every code change that might affect a particular ML package. You also test all of these nightly because these development versions are changing so frequently. You might uncover incompatibility kind of at any given moment. It also creates a fair bit of overhead for us as a team to make sure that we stay on top of uh, that CI process and making sure that our tooling actually remains compatible with those versions. But I think the community appreciates it. And maybe to give a little bit of historical flavor, before the development of that pipeline, which Haru spearheaded and did most of the work on, we just picked a version of a library 
Uh, we figured, hey, customers are presumably using something like TensorFlow 2.1 or 2.2 around the time when those libraries were, were first being released. So that was the only version we tested. Uh, didn't really look at the potential for introducing regressions, didn't really look at development versions. And I, I think there were a lot more issues uh, as a result of that. These ML libraries are, are just such a difficult and constantly evolving ecosystem from a, uh, a compatibility perspective. Yeah, w- one thing I observe is uh, related to open source projects is because there are so much cross-dependencies between different projects. They all evolve at their own speed. So uh, keep track of all of these and make sure your code works with all the dependencies. Definitely a very complicated problem. And anecdotally, uh, I could give an example of Hyrule's Cross-version test was so great, good at detecting the issues. I, I recall, was that the sklearn or the other major package release? And there was a, a bunch of things broken. We didn't even know. And the, the, our cross-version test actually found out and notified the, the maintainer. That's a, uh, Corey, which, uh, which are, do you remember? Which was? Yeah. Yeah. It was scikit-learn. There yeah. were some issues with, uh, dynamically computed class properties. Uh, kind of buried in there, and both Haru and Wei Chen worked together. Haru, you actually submitted pull requests to fix those in the Scikit-Learn project, right? Yeah, I think I think I did. Yeah, it was really cool. Awesome, got it. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And just intuitively, ML development is is fundamentally different from software development because ML has so many moving parts, and software it tends to be evaluated from a Boolean criteria of whether it, the goal has been achieved or not. So if a feature is launched or not. But with ML, you're always trying to improve, always trying to make accuracy more accurate. And also the data and the incoming libraries can all change. So I was just interested to, to understand how you could test so many moving parts in a scalable way. But thank, thank you for evaluating or elaborating on that. So moving on a little bit, let's take a bit of a step back. And it seems like you guys have built a really robust testing pipeline and testing flow. And maybe five, 10 years ago, testing was a really useful skill for ML engineers. And you guys are sort of making that (laughs) obsolete. So I was wondering how you guys have seen ML flow change the ML engineering skill set. And what will be the ML engineering skill set in the next three to five years? I think a lot of what we've been doing over the last few years has been solving kind of the nitty gritty problems of a software ecosystem that data scientists and ML engineers are typically either not super interested or maybe not all that uh, well-equipped to handle. You know, the goal of an ML engineer or a data scientist is to extract insights from data, model data, and ultimately use those insights to create predictions. They're not so much interested in making sure that uh, they're using reproducible software environments so the results may uh, remain consistent. They're not really all that uh, interested in building efficient training execution systems, uh, tooling like that. They want to leverage those tools to be better at their jobs and to make better predictions and have uh, business or research impact. But if it's their job to build that tooling, that often lengthens the iteration cycle from hours, days to potential years. So I think a lot of what we've been focused on is solving that problem for ML developers across uh, a lot of common libraries and across a lot of common training techniques. But as far as where we're going, I think we're going to focus more in the realm of how do we make sure that ML developers are 
successful with that infrastructure that we've built? How do we kind of encourage best practices? How do we create information architecture for laying out things like training data sets and representing models and things that lends itself to developer productivity and to the accuracy and correctness of results? Basically moving from solving that problem of software testing into helping our users and our customers optimize for accuracy and build the best models they can build. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. And I know Jen's been doing a ton of thinking on this. I'm sure you have some insight there to, to add. Yeah, to add a little bit on Corey's comment, I think uh, to quote Andrew Kapati, it's a software 2.0 compared to software 1.0, which is uh, basically all the software we've been writing so far. The, the software 2.0, the key uh, addition or attribute is the data itself. So MLflow has already provided a lot of good tracking capabilities uh, on, on data, including the uh, upstreaming, ingestion, uh, training data, do evaluation data, as well as well as the model itself is also considered a part of data. So how we are thinking uh, like going forward is basically try to help data scientists, which by itself is already a really vast uh, subject, like it re- requires years of training to understand all the, the, the knowledge uh, knowledge domains and have good, good practices, practice experiences. So we want to basically try to use MLflow to shield data scientists away from this managing all these like, uh, complications uh, in terms of the maintain and a very robust and reproducible productionized pipeline system so that we can, um, they can just focus on really just solving the actual uh, machine learning problem, and, uh, yeah, which is uh, their core domain experience. Yeah, so the, the main goal and charter of the team in a meta sense is automate away the annoying stuff. If you could boil it down to, to a single sentence, it's stuff that like Haru and I both were data scientists in a previous life, ML engineers. And the reason he knows all of these things that need to be improved in, a, in an open source tooling is because it's painful to do it, like do that manually. Almost every feature that you see being developed in MLflow, everything that's on the future roadmap, I don't know if the new one's released yet, but Corey, um, <laughs> but as the, everything that gets added on there and all these new f- projects uh, for the, the toolkit, like a great example is what Wei Shen's been working on uh, that's just been released in uh, the latest branch is explainability and automating away that complexity from end users that's how you get people using the tool because nobody wants to write that code themselves if they're trying to solve a business problem i used to hate doing that stuff like oh i have to have to create a hash key to go to a saved model somewhere and start an oltp table and to figure out like what is running in production right now i've got you know 437 models like which one is which and you know 
no, you shouldn't be having to like be a DBA and an ML engineer at the same time. So that's really what the team is focusing on for for major new initiatives. Got it. So basically, taking anything that can be done by a machine and having a machine do it, and leaving the fundamentally human part to humans. I think that's an extremely good way to characterize it. And there's so much of that uh, machine-driven dependency structure in ML modeling and, and data science specifically. It's just it's a really hard space. Yeah. Awesome. Wei Chen, I know that you were working a bit on metric collection and standardization. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the pros and cons of, of standardizing metrics and more specifically, how you would balance customizing versus standardizing. So not no two models are identical. So how can you give users the ability to customize to a specific model while having standardized code and standardized metrics? Got I'm it. Sorry, could you yeah, no worries. And, and if the connection is, isn't great, um, we can move on. So no worries. But can you uh, speak about how you balance customization of metrics versus standardizing metrics? I think the, this may depends on use case. And more specifically from an infrastructure standpoint. So how do you build infrastructure that is both standardized, but also gives people the ability to customize? It's a hard question, and I can discuss some of the efforts that we have taken and where we might want to go with that. And Wei Chen and and Haru have really been instrumental to executing a lot of that vision. So a lot of it ties into how the ML, ML4 platform was built. We felt that it was important to create infrastructure that supported recording arbitrary performance metrics, arbitrary model parameters, any file that a developer might be interested in tracking as part of the ML development procedure. But then on top of that sort of base scaffolding, we realized that just because we can allow developers to record pretty much anything that they think might be useful, it doesn't mean that developers always want to record all of that information manually. So that's where the standardization comes in on top of customization. V0 of MLflow was all customization. Was If you want this metric, you log it. You compute it yourself. And more recent versions have introduced these concepts that we call auto-logging and even more recently model evaluation, which given a model and given a training validation or test data set will automatically compute what we believe is a good broad standard set of metrics. We tie those to the data set that was supplied and we make them easily comparable and easily discoverable. In fact, this model evaluation work was just released as part of the most recent version of MLflow and WeChen did a, a ton of work to make sure that we're computing a solid set of metrics and also introducing some useful insights around model explainability. Interesting. So you guys started with customization and then saw what people wanted and then standardized based on those results. Is that correct? You got it. Exactly. And all of these tools allow and afford further customization. So what we give you is a baseline. You can add anything that's helpful to your use case on top of that. And we found some really good adoption in auto-logging and we're expecting the same for model evaluation. Got it. Awesome. So as we talked about, you guys are doing tons of different stuff and moving very quickly. And the industry itself is moving very quickly. So I was wondering if you guys could speak about how you learn things and new, specifically new skills quickly. And more importantly, how do you know what not to learn? Wow, that's a great second part of that question. <laughs> I don't know on the second part from my perspective, but I've never worked in an organization or a, a team 
in my entire career that has people that can learn effectively, not just learn new stuff, but learn stuff and be able to apply it as fast as this team can. It's mind blowing to me, like just getting to see a bunch of geniuses. So it's the team has wisdom built up of saying, okay, we need to learn these things because we did the testing and evaluating and did a, a bit of research. But then there's this fearless pursuit of just just going for it and building and building something that might break and then it, you just fix it and go through it really quickly. There's so many different components of software that people on the team have to maintain from UI, UX, you know, front end code to database code, uh, database migration code, and back end architecture, ML, statistics, base mathematics. There's a lot of stuff. And this team can can learn it really quickly. I'll let somebody else handle the second part of that, though, what not to learn. Yeah, I think my observation is that all you need is basically two things. Uh, hire a, a brilliant people with a diverse, the key diverse background, as I've been mentioned, and also put them in the same room, uh, stand up, daily stand up, so that they, they can quickly learn from each other's, uh, both from each other's experience, but also most important mistakes. And that, that would actually help us to uh, progress tremendously. Just as observed in the past year. Got it. So relying on people's talent and collaboration is the, is the key. Collaboration is very, very important. That's how you learn quickly. Got it. Might sound obvious, but I think when done really well and really effectively is the catalyst for a lot of the results. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I remember I had a manager back in my internship days and I loved working on side projects and just learning things. And I would just be grinding on something that I am making no progress. And he was like, why are you doing that? And I was like, well, it's cool. I'm, I'm learning, right? And he was like, no, go ask someone who knows the answer. And the key is with collaboration, it can really shortcut the learning process and speed it up so that you learn not only more effectively, but you learn the right things. So I wanted to just zoom in one more time on there's millions of skill sets, millions of new technologies, millions of new libraries that theoretically each of you could spend tons of time learning. So how do you distill all the, the noise and find the signal in what is really important to your job and to creating a better product? I think you should roundtable answer that one, by the way. I think everybody's going to have a different answer to that. All right, let's do it. Definitely. Ben, start us off. I'm lazy, so I try to do the least amount of of instead of canvassing broadly, I try to just tr like truncate the amount of things that I need to look at to potentially solve something, evaluate all of them as quickly as possible, and then and then at that point, after distilling it down, ask two or three people's opinion, and if they all, if I get a quorum from those people, I know I'm on the right track, and if everybody's like, dude, what what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, what would you do here? And then reevaluate to, to just go crazy. Got it. So be lazy, make a list of things that could potentially work and evaluate them as quickly as possible. But the overall guidance is be lazy. Be lazy and and ask some friends who, yeah. who are going to give you different answers, hopefully. And and be deliberate. You know, there's there's sloth and then there's just being selective <laughs> yeah. with the with what you're focusing on. The way that I personally try to make these decisions is I, I use two signals. The first is volume. So if I've heard about, and this is particularly in the context of, of issues, you know, if you hear many customers, many users that are complaining about a similar sticking point, that's that's excellent signal. And that's probably conventional and canonical signal that 
pretty much anybody would be able to pick up and follow. The other piece of it is trends in industry that seem to be broader than just what one or, or two customers or users are, are talking about. So you know, even if what we're hearing, you know, it might be minuscule, but if it seems like, hey, this is a, a real problem that is fundamental to the space and aligns with our mission, then we might solve it proactively. And we rely a lot on our wonderful product teams that are conducting customer interviews, doing community outreach uh, on a weekly basis for those. They help us kind of predict the future. Got it. So to, to recap that, just it sounds like pay attention to what other people are saying and doing. And in the first form, just look at volume to see how many people are talking about a specific thing. And then the second is sort of have a pulse on the industry and think high level for where industry trends are headed. Is that, is that correct? Nailed it. Sweet. Jin Haru, care to contribute? Yeah, I can, I can add a little bit on top of that. I think Corey said it's basically also the strategy I use, but I tend to lean a bit, a little bit more on the industry side, right? Purely because my, interest. I, well, I just want to see what's going on outside in the world. Uh, so I, I listen to some podcasts and uh, read some articles, basically do some activist research. Uh, I, my favorite product analysis is actually competitive analysis on different products. But uh, I really just want to see what's what's going on out there. Awesome. And then Haru, do you, I know we've talked about literally everything, but do you have any other additions? Like, how do you like install analysis? Yeah, how do you choose what to learn? And where to focus your time? How do I choose? How do I choose what to learn? I usually choose what to learn. Um, that's a tough question, but based on work, I usually learn what I use on on work. Like for example, if I need to implement something in React, I I use um, uh, React. That's probably how I choose what to learn. Got it. So if if it's related to a current work project, you'll pick up the necessary skills to complete that project. Yeah. Got it. And oftentimes faster than uh, the majority of the company. <laughs> that's an understatement. So somebody who just, oh, just, just with some free time to kill learns how to do most of the actions of a DevOps team, integrate automation with GitHub Actions and make sure that the entire CI/CD process is as automated as it can be. And then, you know, just learns JavaScript, you know, because for fun, do some UI stuff and then learns and then applies Python with ML libraries and how to integrate with those. It's a pretty broad knowledge base and it's deep. But I'd say that's, that's pretty applicable to most people on the team. You know, everybody has this broad understanding because there's so many pieces of tech that this team has to touch. Yeah. yeah, to circle back on that, I think the key is that I, I, that's my understanding. The folks here have a really solid foundation in computer technology, it's a computer science. I think that actually enables that you quickly pick up all the different uh, technologies like uh, JavaScript, Python, Rust, you whatever language or whatever, whatever framework. Once you have the good foundation, it's actually not that difficult. Yeah, that makes sense because there's, there's, motifs and underlying similarities between all technologies so if you if you know the basics and if you if you worked in object-oriented programming or whatever it is you can pick up new object-oriented programming languages a lot more quickly that, that makes a ton of sense cool so we're we're almost at time and i wanted to just sort of conclude with a with a high level question to you guys and specifically you jen what are some of the things that your team is excited to work on? What What are the fun things that you think are going to change the industry in the coming several years? And 
yeah, what, where, where are you guys headed? Great. Since you asked me, I, I will start first, but I, I definitely want everyone to contribute their thoughts. My understanding is that MLflow itself, the key uh, driver for the adoption is because it's in server use. And also the second one is the openness. So we definitely want to keep uh, uh, continue to developing on these two fronts and make sure like the uh, MLflow itself is uh, provide more and more convenience, like callback or convenience functions so that uh, our users, mostly data scientists, do not have to worry about uh, all the nitty-gritty things they, uh, in, a, in a typical software development process, but also on the production deployment part uh, so that they can actually make their uh, their project to uh, create real business values. I think that's one of the key problems that we've been seeing in a lot of the cases in data breaks customers their data science and data scientist team are struggling. And the biggest concern of uh, is to how to realize the value of their models. So you know, this is basically a way or one of the, the, the key uh, directions we want to go is make sure MLflow can support them to to bridge this gap to make sure they, the products, the model they created can be and easily be utilized in the business and production setting. The next one is on the openness. We're, we're going to continue to support the automator um, or, um, software, so like especially on the ML front, all the ML frameworks, uh, deployment from frameworks, all these kinds, um, whatever it is. I think this is a call competitive advantage for uh, ML. Awesome. Absolutely. Uh, I think the practice of ML modeling outside of your Googles and your Facebooks and your huge companies over the last few years has really been this kind of gradient descent towards an optimal scenario where you have data scientists and, and ML engineers that can just do their jobs. They can they can just focus on interpreting data, modeling it, extracting insights, and putting something into production that, that delivers value. And I don't think any particular platform is there yet uh, for for that set of developers, for most of us. And as Jin said, the key to getting there is not vendor lock-in. It's making sure that the advances made by any particular platform are easily adopted and shared by the broader community and iterated on. And I think that's what makes MLOps and MLflow and the Databricks so special, is that if a particular tool set or a particular workflow is found to be extremely convenient, error-free, and produces good results for a particular modeling task, it'll run on Databricks. MLflow will support it. And just continuing to make sure that the scaffolding we provide for running all these tools is is top-notch, runs well, and doesn't add to the inconvenience of, of bugs in an already uh, difficult industry. I, I think that's a, a key motivation. And if we can do that, then that gradient descent can proceed. Got it. So it sounds like you guys are very focused on building infrastructure that facilitates convenience in development and reliability, but but mainly uh, convenience in that it reduces the total amount of work needed and it reduces the headaches with potential uh, not super robust infrastructure. So solving an infrastructure problem and solving a writing a ton of code problem, which are kind of related. Extremely. Bad infrastructure uh, yields tons of code. Yeah. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, 
and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Yeah, and I think some of the tooling, what's most exciting to me is seeing how standards will develop over time. Like we could list out hundreds of features of like, oh, it'd be cool if it, if it would do this. And the community does that pretty regularly, almost daily. Um, and the issues tab in GitHub of ideas that people have. Like It would be so great if MLflow did X, Y, and Z. And that's cool. And everything for the short-term vision of, of things. What I'm most excited about is how it's going to organically grow over time to become a suite of standards that helps people, it provides a means of doing something. It's easier to use the tool and those standards than it is not to do it. And that's sort of the underlying guiding force in this entire project is really helping people do what's right for solving important issues in the world. That's what it enables. And I think it's going to continue doing that and it's going to get better at that so that the things that people are even not aware of that should be part of production support systems for machine learning is going to be part of this toolkit and it's just going to be trivial to like to turn it on it'll just be a switch do i want monitoring to make sure that i'm not producing biased results yes turn that on make sure that's just on but you don't have to write that fifty thousand lines of code for your project because it's just part of this framework right that, that makes a lot of sense and haru what are you most excited about i'm most excited about maybe the community growth I think MLflow communities, they has like a lot of, like the room of growth. I think, yeah, to be honest, I think we can do better with the community as, as you know, community has a lot of great ideas, but I think, you know, we can make more good reviews and, uh, we can, we can be more responsible, uh, with the community requests. And yeah, that's what I'm most excited about the community growth. Awesome. And I completely agree. And I'm sure that anybody else that uh, works with the MLflow community. Would echo that sentiment, so Jen and Ben. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, one one of the biggest, um, like the current barrier or hurdle of working with the community is that, as you can see, we are a very small team, and uh, we there is not just not enough time and resources to do all the peer review and to review the issues raised by the community members. But on the, on the other hand, I think uh, just like Haru was actually initially part of a big community. But now Harry is part of the core development team. We're definitely looking for more um, brilliant folks like Harry. They can they keep contributing to the community, but also we definitely want to bring them into the core team so that we can continue to grow, uh, grow the team, grow the community. And grow the Absolutely. And for all the wonderful people listening, it's super easy to make your first contribution. And we'd love to help you onboard to the MLflow community and work with you to make MLOps easier for everyone. So please check out the GitHub. Don't be shy. And uh, we look forward to your contributions. Yeah. And, that, and that we're hiring. <laughs> and we're hiring. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, that, that was a phenomenal wrap-up, Corey. And I guess Ben, too. So thank you, everyone, for, for joining us this week. Um, looking forward to next week. Ben, you got anything else on your end? Uh, we'll put in some information in uh, the show notes about how to get into contact with with everybody, their LinkedIn profiles, their GitHub accounts. If you're really curious about anybody that's been on the panel today and want to check out what they actually contribute to MLflow and want to check out their super sweet code, anybody that's a software geek uh, like myself that just likes looking at people's PRs, you'll find some great examples in in Python and in JavaScript uh, for everybody that's that's on this panel. So we'll get that in the, the show notes. And yeah, that's pretty much it for me. 
just want to say thanks for the team showing up today. This was super fun and, and insightful. And, and the, the questions were awesome, Michael. So yeah, it's great. Yeah. yeah it was what I was about to say. Uh, wonderful job, Michael. And you know, thanks so much for, for facilitating Ben. This was a ton of fun. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys for taking the time out of your day and joining. Thank you, Haru, for staying up till 6 a.m. to speak with us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Haru is in Japan, and it is very late right now for him. Yeah, it is one forty a.m. in Japan. <laughs> yeah. All right. So until uh, next week, thanks for tuning in. This was uh, just great. All right. Have a good week, everyone. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more.